Good morning. It is such an honor to be able to be here uh, with my family, Allison, and my daughter, Elise, and son, Joshua. And as I joked this morning, we go to Emmanuel Presbyterian, and so I only try to stick with Emmanuel's. And so other churches that aren't Emmanuel, I don't bother with. Well, it is Advent, and I love Advent. I'm actually enamored by the growing chill in the air outside and the noticeably shorter and shorter days as darkness begins to envelop the light. Yet in the midst of this consuming darkness outside, we have the season of the church's liturgical calendar called Advent. So like many of you at home, our family has an Advent wreath on the kitchen table. You know, and we've got four candles that represent each of the four weeks of Advent. And, and the center of the candle is a giant white candle representing our Savior. And each evening, we have a family devotional where we just read a short little passage. And that first week, we light the first candle. And that lone, flickering, flickering light is there almost pathetically. The darkness is almost mocking that one little candle. But Advent progresses, and the second week comes, and we light a second candle. And those two candles flame together and almost pound against the darkness outside like, like a truck that's laboring to get to the top of a mountain. And then finally, Advent progresses, and the truck crests the mountain, and the third week comes, and light triumphs over darkness, and that truck begins to barrel down to the bottom, just as Advent barrels towards Christmas morning, reminding us that we get to light that center candle that represents the light of the world that has come, Emmanuel, God with us. Advent's a time that tells us that God is God, and he understands us. He relates to us, and he keeps his promises. So all, on Christmas Day, all five candles are ablaze. Even though you can look at that first little candle from the first week, and what's he been doing all Advent long? He's been laboring away, fighting against the darkness. He's almost completely consumed. Christmas morning, that candle reminds us of the truth that's real in this life, that we are pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. And just like that candle, we are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. So Advent shows us that God came once, and indeed, light triumphed over darkness, and we hold on to the hope that he will come again. In Advent, we can cry out alongside the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O darkness, where is your sting? I love Advent. Each year at this time in Advent, often in the church's liturgical readings, we're taken to the book of Isaiah. If you look back in previous years at Advent, what book always seems to show up? It's, it's, it's Isaiah. We love Isaiah at Advent time. Interestingly, the name Isaiah, Isaiah means this. Yahweh is salvation. 
Isaiah preached and wrote about 700 years before Jesus. Now think about that. 700 years is a long time. I mean, if we go back 700 years from right now, the Middle Ages were just wrapping up, and the dawn of the Renaissance was just beginning in Italy. 700 years ago was a long time. So that's when Isaiah was writing. And he was writing to a people who were rebellious and turning their fists against God. And if you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you get this message of Isaiah saying, return to your first love. Otherwise, God is going to have to discipline you. And so although there's a thread of the new Jerusalem and a hope that exists in the first 39 chapters, you read those chapters and God is basically saying, come back to me or else, well, life will not be good. And that's the first 39 chapters. And interestingly, Isaiah himself watched this discipline come in 722 BC when the nation of Assyria came and all but destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. He saw that and witnessed that with his own hands. And then we come to chapter 40, the passage that we read this morning, and something strange happens. It's almost as if we're taken to a different time because we are. In chapter 40, Isaiah is looking forward 150 years from his life to the time when God's discipline comes again to the southern kingdom. And this time, his discipline comes from the nation of Babylon. Now, this is very interesting because if you read the next section of Isaiah, you see that he gives a lot of very specific detail that actually happens to Judah with the Babylonian exile. This leads some people to think that Isaiah didn't write this next section of the Bible. They say that there had to have been another author, perhaps a disciple of a disciple of a disciple, who was able to give this kind of detail to what happened during the Babylonian exile. Um, others would say, well, why couldn't Isaiah have written it? I mean, God is a God who knows all things of all times, and why couldn't God have just given Isaiah that insight? And he wrote that 150 years before it even happened. Well, I'll tell you this today. I'm going to let Jim sort that out for you next week. <laughs> After all, he is now the Reverend Dr. Jim Saladin, so I think he can handle it. But for us, we're just going to look at this passage and see what did Isaiah have to say to these people who were living in exile, who were experiencing the discipline for being rebellious to God. What words did he bring to them? Um, so we'll look at this passage of Isaiah 40, and we'll see that it comes in four parts. I titled these four parts, God Comforts, God Comes, God Becomes, and finally, God Conquers. Will you allow me to pray for us for a second? Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so, so thankful to have this opportunity to come together um, in the cold of outside. We can come together in the warmth of your love and your grace and we can be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God. Thank you for this opportunity. And I pray that as we look at this, this writing that was written 1,400 years ago, Jesus, you would speak to us today. Help us to see you clearly and help our lives to be conformed to you as we look at your word together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're familiar with the Babylonian captivity, 
this discipline of the Lord for the southern kingdom rebelliously sticking their hands up at God, God comes and he exercises discipline on them through this outside nation called Babylon. And what did he do? Well, to set the stage, I want you to imagine this. Imagine you being a mother or a father of an Ivy League son, an Ivy League son who was well-liked by all of his peers. He excelled in sports. He excelled in academics. And then, now imagine what it was like to be this mother, to be this father, and have your son, so full of potential, ripped from your arms, taken from your family, kidnapped, basically, and moved off to this far-off land, never to be seen again. This is one of the tactics Babylon used to conquer the southern kingdom. They went and they took the brightest and the best children away from Jerusalem to Babylon, where they could be indoctrinated and reprogrammed and taught about the wonderful things of Babylonian culture and society. And they left everybody else behind to suffer greatly. If you want to read about the details of what it was like for those people, read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, where he gives details about how Israel suffered greatly under this exile. It was painful. It was terrible. And then in 586 BC, it finally happened. Babylon came. They destroyed Solomon's glorious temple. It was almost as if the candle was snuffed out. Game over. It's done. Can you imagine living in that context? Is there any hope at all? Is there any light at all? Darkness had won, hadn't it? Or did it? This is how, what we bring to this passage in Isaiah 40. And what does Isaiah say? He says these comforting words where God comforts. And he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. In what seems to be complete darkness, one flickering candle glows. The first week of Advent. My wife Allison and I lived for 10 years nearly in Russia. Russians are a people who know suffering, especially old Russian Christians that lived during the Soviet Empire. I loved having conversations with these old Russian Christians because they would talk about times where people would disappear. They don't know where they went to, never to be seen again. They suffered greatly for their faith. People that were learned and academically bright and strong were having to clean toilets because of their faith. These people suffered greatly during this time. And then, uh, it's been 20 years now, um, the Soviet Union falls and these people are again kind of giving, given life and breath to be able to flourish again as humans. I think that's what, can you imagine what it'd be like to be under that kind of exile? That's what these people were experiencing. And God who comforts says, your warfare is ended, your iniquity is pardoned. And not only that, you have received from the Lord's hand double for all of our sins. Ancient Israel, 
They were rebellious, and they had sinned greatly. They deserved the punishment they got because they didn't come back to the gracious, loving Father that invited them to him. But he also gave them grace and forgiveness they didn't deserve. A double portion. Think about that in our own lives. The times that we are rebellious against God and we turn our fist to him and shake it at him and say, God, I'm going to do it our own way. God would be right to exercise discipline with us because that's what we deserve. But how often does God withhold that discipline and actually gives us grace instead? Because God is like a loving father who's wooing us and always wanting us to come back into the family. And so Isaiah says here, he gives them double for all of their sins. The next passage, first one, was God comforts. Next, Isaiah leads us into this passage where God comes. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In those days, when a village or town was to welcome somebody of royalty or a king or somebody of importance, all hands would come on deck, and they would prepare the way for that dignitary to come into the town, they would prepare a road, they would clean everything up, everything would get a fresh paint, coat of paint, so that this very important person can come in unhindered into their village or town. It's like that today, like having lived in Moscow. Um, if you've been to Moscow, you know that it's a place where the roads are not in the best of conditions. In fact, driving around, there are potholes so big that it will swallow an entire car, car without, even, without even thinking. The roads aren't that great, except for one. And this road is called Leninsky Prospect. And it is a very wide boulevard that stretches as far as you can see. And the asphalt is black and like glass, smooth. Why? This is the road, Leninsky Prospect, that connects Damodedova Airport to the heart of Moscow. And who travels on this road? When anybody of importance comes to Moscow, they fly to Damodedova Airport, and they get to come into the city on this wide, easy road called Leninsky Prospect. They don't have potholes on that road. That road is smooth because they want to welcome the dignitary and show them how wonderful and how great Moscow is. You know, we even do that here in the United States. You've been around during the United Nations General Assembly, right? Traffic is horrific. It is snarled and back-to-back -back people are honking and it takes two hours to get through Midtown, correct? Well, I laugh because Barack Obama, a couple years ago when he was in town for the General Assembly, made this very funny comment. He goes, I've heard people complain about the traffic in New York City. I myself don't get it. I don't see the problem. It was easy for me to get here. Why? Because a lot of expense had been paid to prepare the way to let him come in that's what we do. And God is saying in this passage, prepare the way for the Lord. God wants to come into our city. He wants to come into us. But making a road is hard work. 
it takes a lot of effort to fill in the valleys and to knock down the mountains so that they're as a plain, doesn't it? The spiritual life, though, is clearing the ground to enable God to come in. One of my favorite contemporary theologians is a man named Robert Barron. In reflecting upon this passage, he uh, imagines a helicopter wanting to rescue, wanting to save soldiers that are behind enemy lines. So you can picture this helicopter hovering, trying to get to these soldiers, but he can't because the ground and the brush and the trees are keeping him from landing the helicopter. And so it does no good for these soldiers to stand down there and yell and scream and say, hey, we're right here, right here. It does absolutely no good because the helicopter can't get in. What do they have to do? They have to clear the ground to give that helicopter a safe place to land. And when they do that, the helicopter wants to rescue them and wants to save them and comes in and takes them out of that dangerous situation. What does it look like for us to clear the ground so that the grace of God can come in this Advent season? What hills do we need to dock down? What valleys do we need to fill in our lives? Advent is a time for us to clear the ground so that we can prepare a way for the Lord. What keeps you from making a path? Well, I'll tell you, it's hard. It's hard work. It's difficult. As Baron describes, the deep valley of our intolerance needs to be filled in. Or I'm sorry, our indifference needs to be filled in. Often we're just indifferent and we don't care to make a path. Our own spiritual life becomes numb and we get tired. We have the pressures of everything that's calling for our attention and we don't care enough to just make the time and dwell with the Lord and listen to him through his word. And then we look at the needs around us. Sometimes we just don't care that there are people out there that are cold and they're hungry and that have needs. This Advent is a time to fill in the valley of indifference and see the world as Jesus sees the world. What can we do to give of ourselves so that the grace of God can come in? Other times we need to level the mountains. What are those mountains? Oh, the sin that we hold on to so tightly. Perhaps it's a sin of control, where we feel like we need to control the things around us, or perhaps it's a sin of greed, where we feel like we just don't have enough, and so we need a little bit more to be secure and be happy, and you know what? That little more never comes. Maybe it's the mountain of lust or pride, those, there, those areas that God wants to level in your heart so that he can come in. And we don't have to do these things. God can work, God can come in, God can clear that himself. But these are the things that God has given us to be able to clear the path so that his grace can fully come in and change us and make us like him. In this Advent, fight back the darkness and make space for God's grace to speak to you. Now the third point of this passage in Isaiah is God becomes. And you start to get this sense, just like the truck that was cresting the hill, you start to get the sense that momentum is building up, and it starts barreling to the base of that mountain. It's unstoppable, just like the grace of God is unstoppable. 
This passage always makes me chuckle, though, a little bit. Because that last verse of the third section always finds its way onto a coffee mug or a t-shirt or a Facebook post. Let me say it for you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but finish it. Isn't that a great verse? I mean, we should put that on the wall in a, what's that called? Needlepoint something and frame it. We should. It's a great verse, right? Um, and sometimes we look at it and says, well, everything is going to burn up, but the Bible will be around forever. I mean, what, do they fireproof that thing or something? How's that going to be around forever? You know, 700 years before Jesus was, most of the Bible hadn't been written yet. And so with most verses, before we sometimes need to resist the temptation to go make a t-shirt out of it, and we need to understand what it means, and we need to read the verses around it before we do that. And so let's take a look at this. And uh, the word of the Lord will endure forever. When we read the word of our God stands forever and think maybe it's not just speaking of the Bible, but our minds should go to something much greater than that. We should think of Genesis in creation when it's written, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and what happened next? God spoke. The pre-incarnate word spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. We should think of when we see the word, the word, we should think of the opening chapter in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So now let's read this third section, where God becomes. And a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Cry this, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are like grass. That doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? What is it saying? You and I are like the grass and the flowers of the field. And what's to become of us? We'll fade, we'll wither, we'll die. Amen, let's pray. No, God becomes. And what does the word become? That God becomes just like you and me. He becomes flesh. And what happened to his flesh? His flesh was like the grass and the flowers of the fields. His flesh withered and died. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. He knows the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome him. No, God conquered the darkness. And that leads us to the fourth 
point, the fourth week of Advent, the flames are ablaze now. And we read this last section and it says, Go on to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Hear, the, hear of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Like this truck thundering to the base of the mountain, Advent moves us towards a blaze of glory in the hope of Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. And his recompense before him, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead those that are with young. This is Advent. You know, life sometimes is a challenge and the darkness and the cold outside reminds us that we are not at home. We are in exile. We are wandering in the wilderness and our hearts cry out for something more. And in the midst of that, God is saying, comfort, be comfort. Allow God to comfort you this Advent season wherever you are. And in the midst of that, make a path because God comes and he wants to come to you. So clear out the sin and the things that keep you from his grace coming to you and know that God became light for you. And he conquered it with consuming light. This is Advent. I love Advent. Amen.